Neighborhood Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. here it's good to be here and I am going to talk about the blizzard because it was the very first time I ever went trick-or-treating was in 1991 and um, I was probably the greatest trick-or-treater of all time because I was undaunted by a storm because I just wanted to get out and get candy and I was 11 so um, it was a little odd that I was 11 years old and going trick-or-treating for the first time and my brother, I remember my brother was a couple years younger. I dressed up as a scarecrow because I didn't really have a lot of dress-up items, but I had enough stuff to dress up like a scarecrow. Um, and my, I don't remember what my brother was, but I remember just eventually we were putting on heavier gear, like we got in the car and he drove us to the next place and we put on snow pants and it was a hat. And pretty soon, like, didn't even matter that you had a costume on because you're just ready for the snow. Um, but where my parents took me, I grew up here in Cloquet, and so we drove up to Erickson Acres because that was the place, that was like the trick-or-treating place to go. You know how when you were a kid, there was always just that one neighborhood you had to go to because they always had, like, they gave away the full candy bars, right? You, all, you don't ever forget that house, like, gives you a full candy bar. And so uh, we drove up to Erickson Acres. We were around during that blizzard time. But the, one of the reasons I was pushing myself through drifts of snow uh, was because I thought maybe this might be the very last time that I ever, maybe the first and the last time I'd ever trick or treat. Um, because every day up, at, or every Halloween up until that point, um, we didn't celebrate Halloween as a family. Um, it was something that we, as a part of our faith practice, we didn't have anything to do with Halloween at all. We usually spent it at home. We'd play like family games, or we would go to a church harvest party. Anybody been to a church harvest party? Yeah, yep. I mean, there was fun. We had, like, we had games, and we, <laughs> at the church I went to, we had to dress up as a Bible character. Um, and there's only so many times as a girl that you want to dress up like Queen Esther. I mean, <laughs> that, that kind of gets old. I think I dressed up as a sheep once. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think my mom, like, drew a mask for me. It was pretty incredible. Um or you could be Mary, the mother of Jesus. That was an option for you. But then there were people you couldn't ever be, like you couldn't really be Jezebel. Like that was too spicy, right? <laughs> even at church, there are things that are just a little too spicy to be there, even in the Bible. Um, but if there wasn't a harvest party, we just stayed at home and we shut the lights off and we let people do what they want to do. And we live on Carlton Avenue, which is close to here. And so people just like, it was like speed alley. People just went as fast as they could, so we rarely had anybody who had stopped for um, Halloween, but one time somebody did, and the only, I remember this very clearly, I gotta remind my dad this, the only thing we had in the house, because we didn't buy candy, was he had an opened package of carefree gum. Do you guys remember carefree gum? Like the sugar-free stuff, the bubble gum? So he went down and like, I remember just feeling so embarrassed. Do you remember these moments where you're like embarrassed for your family? I'm like, oh my gosh, my dad's just gonna hand out like three sticks of gum to this kid. Like he's got his bag open, like, and it's dark. Anyway, yeah, so we didn't have those things because a part of our faith practice growing up was that we didn't get to celebrate Halloween. Halloween was like this um, 
it was an evil and dark day, and so we didn't practice anything on that day. And it was a part of our job as being Christians is to stand against that culture. So it was that whole phrase of, we're, like, we're going to be in the world, but we're not going to be of the world, which when you're a little kid, you don't really understand. You're just like, so everybody else gets to dress up and go have candy, but we're not going to be of the world. I'm like, that looks pretty good. I think I want to go over and do that thing. Um, but the thing that I bumped up against was when my parents or the church said, like, this is evil. Like, we don't want to participate in evil. That strikes you pretty good as a kid. You're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so I didn't really push very hard up against that. But what it did for me was um, it started to feel like Halloween and anything attached to that, anything that was dark, anything that was scary, created a lot of fear in me. So I developed a lot of um, worries and troubles as a little kid. I had a hard time sleeping at night. I still do. So I'd go to bed at night, and like, you know, parents would be like, okay, shut your light off and go to sleep. And my brain would be like, oh no, we got like three hours of worry ahead of us. Like, I got to think through everything that happened in the day, everything I ate, everything that person did. Every and my brother would fall asleep. I'm like, how, who are these people that can just like crawl into bed and go to sleep? But he would fall asleep driving from like our house to McDonald's. I'd look over, and I'm talking to him, and he's asleep in the car. I'm like, well, he can sleep. Um, and maybe if somebody would have told me, I think the thing I was struggling with was I was a pretty anxious kid. If you have a hard time sleeping at night, usually night it gets dark, it's quiet, and there's just time to think. And I was a big thinker, so I had a lot that I was thinking about. Um, but I developed a lot of beliefs that the darkness meant evil, that whenever there was something dark, that there was a presence of evil. And so I'd get scared at night. I'd think something was coming up out of my closet. And so I'd pray and I'd beg my parents, please just leave the door open, leave all the lights on. I need to be able to see. And they were really sweet. They would come in, they would pray for me. They would they even put in, they're like, we're going to help soothe you. So they'd bring in like um, symphony music and play it. But the symphony music was so moving that that would make me cry even more. <laughs> I'd just be like sobbing. And my mom would come in, she's like, no, why are you crying? I'm like, it's not music. <laughs> So the music would go out, um, but eventually I'd leave, and they were very patient and loving with me. But even to this day, I have a hard time resting at night. There's something about the dark. There's something about being in the dark. Eventually they would leave, and I would eventually go to sleep. Um, but even now, my nighttime battles are still a work in progress. But one of the things I want us to think about this morning is what are the stories that you still believe about the dark that cause you fear? What are some of the stories you still tell yourself about the dark that cause you fear? And then even what were you told about that was evil that you've still attached to people or events? Because we can often do that. There are stories that we tell ourselves where we think this thing is evil now, and then we practice things out of that. Or there are things that we're afraid of and that we avoid. Because you see, I don't think that the dark, um, I, didn't be I believe that the dark was where all the evil things happen. And there's something that happens, especially as uh, a woman, when you're a little girl, there are things you're just told regularly in culture that you just like, don't go out at night, don't drive, don't be out too late at night, be afraid of like dark alleys. There's just some stories that there's certain groups of people that we just tell ourselves we can't go and do because of the dark. And I wanted to be cautious and careful of that, but that does add a whole story that we believe about living in the place that we live, that there are things we just can't go and do. And so we have these things that naturally build up as fears. Um, one thing that kind of gets attached that just out of the culture, but then spiritually when we're inside of a church, is that there are things that are attached to darkness that then gets attached to Satan. 
And so one of the things that we talk about on Halloween is being very careful that the things that you dress up as or that you talk about, that that could be an access point for the enemy or for Satan. Now for really small little kids, that is a hard story to swallow because you want to be safe, you want to be careful, and you also want to practice and be a good person within your faith. And so I remember I'd hear all these stories about, especially on Halloween, that this day was darker and that there was more things that were scary that were happening on this day, and I was a little confused. So I remember I'd ask, I was a pretty curious kid, so I don't know if it was in Sunday school or someplace, I just like raised my hand, I'm like, um, if Satan is super powerful, like who gave him all that power? Like if God, like right, God created everything, like so who gave, did God give Satan all this power? And to me as somebody who's fallen Christianity, this seems kind of like an entry level question that needs to be answered. Like who made Satan? If Satan's the bad guy, right? And Jesus is the good guy, like who made him? And if God created the whole thing, in my brain, like what's the story? What's the story of this Satan, the enemy? Um, and I remember I never really got a good answer. I don't know if any of you have ever really gotten a good answer about that, but I always felt like I was met with like fear or I got a bunch of rules like, well, we're not going to mock God. Like God is, God is really good and God creates all the good stuff and you don't need to be worried, just don't do bad stuff. And so you're, you know, you're that little kid like sitting on the rug like, okay, don't do all the bad stuff, what's the bad stuff? Right, and so you have the checklist of all the things that you can do and the things that you're not going to do. Um, and so I asked this pretty regularly. I remember asking my parents, who gave, because I'm like, they're safe. I can ask them, like, who gave Satan all this power? Like, I thought God had lots of power. And even for them, they kind of stumbled around that question, like, well, you know, just, you know, God loves you, and God made you, and God made everything. I'm like, yeah, but who made Satan? And I never really got the answer to that question. And I think there's something about when we get asked a question that we don't really totally understand ourselves, or we don't have a really simple answer. We try to give especially children something that they can live with, something that's easy, or we don't want them to live in more fear. And so I look back now and I think my parents were just trying to give me something that was kind and loving. Well, it was still something that they didn't quite understand completely. Uh, but it can come, with hearing all that, it can come with a lot of spiritual baggage where you're believing that, okay, this, this enemy is out there and he somehow on this day has more power than God has inside of me. And to this day, I don't believe that that is true. I think that God lives inside of us, Holy Spirit is with us, and that there isn't anything that can take over that, um, that, that power that's there. But it can give us some spiritual baggage, and that's why I want us to ask ourselves, what are some of these stories that we tell ourselves? Are we learning them from culture? Are we learning them physically from things that are going on? Um, so I just want to give us a couple of um, things. I don't believe, or I do believe that there are bad things that can happen in the dark. I don't want to tell this whole story talking about darkness and have you think, I don't know what Nikki is talking about. There are bad things that happen in the dark. Is there real evil in the world? Absolutely. There are things that are evil in the world. There's dark things that happen in the dark and things that happen in the light that are evil. But is it the fault of Halloween that evil exists? Absolutely not. Is dressing up like Spider-Man or a witch going to do anything towards you or set your soul up for control by Satan? Absolutely not. But I think we come by those beliefs quite naturally, especially what we're taught in culture about being safe. And the Bible itself that we read is heavy with all these references that train us that 
there are things that happen in the dark that are evil. We see pictures within the stories and the history that, that anything that's good is in the light and everything that's bad is in the dark. We're taught that we're supposed to run from the dark and run into the light. There are metaphors and stories and poems and history. There's references all over. And even in most literature, things that we read, we know we're kind of trained as young kids, like the dark is bad and the light is good. So we have to do some work to move through that to see what's really going on. But the Bible also, it's full of all these powerful stories where people escaped, where they were rescued, where there were rewards that all happened in the night and in the dark. We see that Jacob wrestled with an angel in the dark. He got a whole new name and a blessing. And that Abraham discovered that he was the father of nations that God pointed out and said, look at every star in the sky. That is how large your family will be even greater. That happens in the dark. We see that Ruth runs to Boaz in the night and she finds sanctuary. And the Hebrew people, they escape from Egypt and they escape from slavery at night in the dark and then God um, follows them as like a pillar of fire and smoke. That happens in the dark. Those things are more brilliant to see at night. Manna falls from the sky at night. It feeds people. Joseph predicts dreams and moves from a dungeon into a palace. And at a nightly feast, Esther reveals this plan where there was going to be execution of her people, and she rescues them from certain death. And then there's our God, and what is God doing in all of this darkness? What's the point? Uh, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor says in her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, I just absolutely love this quote, and she says, this view of darkness is far more nuanced than the one of demonized darkness. While darkness is dangerous, it is as sure a sign of God's presence as brightness is, which makes the fear of it different from the fear of snakes and robbers. When the biblical writers speak of fear of the Lord, this is what they mean. The fear of God's pure being. It's so far beyond human imagining that trying to look in it is like trying to look into the sun. This is called mysterium tremendum et fasciens, meaning the terrible and fascinating mystery of God, which exceeds human ability to manage it in any way. The terrible and fascinating mystery of God, which exceeds human ability to manage it in any way. Um, the Hebrews had a word for dark that they, just that they just reserved for God, and it was called arafel. And its meaning is that it's this unnatural darkness that's both dangerous and divine, and it contains the presence of God alone. Arafel, a dangerous and divine presence. In the same way that even Dr. Barbara Ron Taylor is talking about, there's something about experiencing a level of darkness that's just like experiencing extreme brightness. So I want you to think about a time that maybe you've experienced this Arafel in your life, this dangerous or divine moment where you knew that something wasn't right, but something wasn't quite wrong either. I've had these moments before where there's, there's two of them in particular where I know the, play, the moment that I was standing when was absolutely maybe out of this world or it was holy. Um, one of them was I was taking a long walk in the woods I try to get out regularly after a pandemic and everything and being out regularly, one of the things I like to do is get out for a hike. And so I was out with the dog and having a dog is great because there's some level of like letting my brain relax a little bit because I know if something's gonna happen, the dog's probably gonna dark, 
bark about it first. So I'm out and I'm walking, and it's a, a similar path that I've walked regularly, so I'm kind of out in the middle, probably like a mile out, and all of a sudden I'm walking, I just stop. And you know how you have that feeling like either something's watching you or something's about to happen, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? You just get that feeling like something's up. I don't know what it is, but I stop. And I look at the dog, and the dog isn't barking. He's not chasing. The dog sits. Like, Chance just, I'm like, that's really weird. That's kind of creepy. Like, the dog is sitting. So then I, you know, I'm just, like, scanning, looking, like, what do I see? What do I hear? And it was really quiet. So I don't sense any animals. I don't sense another person that's coming. But it was really curious to me that the dog just sat down. I think that got me more than anything else. And I just had this wave wash over me at how big the universe was. Like as I was standing there, I looked up and I was thinking about the fact that the trees I'm standing next to don't ever leave. Like they're just standing there. Like they'll be back the next time I come here, they're still gonna be standing here. They, either, they might have leaves on them, the leaves might have left, but they've been standing here for how long? And I don't know if that's happened to you where you just have that moment where you realize yourself in the world. Like either how small you are or how messed up you are, or how big you are, or how big your ego is, whatever it is, like you just have that moment where you realize your own humanity. And it was in that moment, I'm like, this something is happening here, I don't know what it is. I would call it now like it was a holy moment. I just had to recognize that that was going on. That's happened, that was all alone. The second one uh, was I was at a U2 concert down in the cities. And I've never been to a show like U2 before. I mean, it is a huge, massive concert with like um, amazing speakers, sound system, whatever. It was incredible. And so we're about like three quarters of the way through the concert. And I was itching to get out of the concert because I think Kira was maybe, I think you were maybe like six weeks old. So I had just had a baby, left her, ran off to this concert. And I was getting that feeling like, I think I need to go feed my baby, so I gotta get out of here. But I felt like we needed to stay. So we're staying, and pretty soon, skies open up. It just starts downpouring rain. And in the middle of the concert, they stop singing whatever song they were singing, and they just start singing Purple Rain, like U2 does. And I, I don't know what happened in that moment. I just like stopped, and I started crying. It was, there was something about that powerful moment hearing everybody, everybody stops, everybody starts singing, and they're standing in the rain singing. And so those are two moments I felt like were kind of dangerous and or def um, divine moments, holy moments where something was happening that was bigger than myself. And there's something about recognizing those. So I wanna know if we can walk in the dark without letting fear overwhelm us. Can we stand in one of those Arafel moments and go, I think I'm a little freaked out right now. I think this is a little overwhelming. Can I stay? Is it okay for me to just stay and rest in this? Is there some bigger experience that's happening right now? And can we learn that being in the dark is just as valuable as being in the light? And so part of our work is just even noticing that maybe we have a bias towards the dark altogether. What are we going to do about that? And it part, of our, part of our bias is that we are meant to be out in the light. So the last thing I wanna talk about is just the physical part that we deal with, but why does it we have a problem with the dark? That we're designed to use daylight for our work and for travel, and our eyes aren't really evolved to handle the night because we're not, nocturn we're not nocturnal. Um, I've been having trouble driving at night, and so I figured it must be that like there's something wrong with my eyes, so I probably need a new prescription. So I went in and saw my eye doctor, and 
you know, she's doing all those flippings, like, one, two, three, four. And pretty soon she's like, I feel like she's, like, way out here. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? They've had your eyes checked. And I'm like, I'm going to walk out my glass. I'm going to be, like, this heavy. I'm going to be dragging them around. Um, but she got all done, and we finally got it cleared up. And she's like, do you have any other problems? And I'm like, yeah, I just, you know, it's really tricky to drive at, l- at night recently. Like, everything seems kind of, like, foggy on the road and, like, I'm having a hard time focusing. I'm like, can you put something in my glasses to fix that up? And she's like, oh, no, no, I can't, I can't do anything about that because it's just your eyes. We aren't meant to see in the dark. So she's like, just be careful when you're out there. I'm like, <laughs> okay. And here I was hoping, like, she's going to be like, I'm just going to add this coating onto your glasses and it's going to clean everything up for you. But really, physically, we're just not designed to see very well in the dark. Like, we can do it. So we have some bias that way, too. So the darkness freaks us out because we're more vulnerable. We can't see as well what's coming down the road. And we rely on the light to help our eyes see what's coming. And in the dark, like I was talking about before when I was a little kid, some of the things that we're able to see are suppressed. Our visual inputs are suppressed. The things that keep us busy and able to see things all day long, they all quiet down in the dark. And we have all this reflective tendency that happens. We can experience shame or guilt or anxiety. They're harder to fight off when it gets dark and quiet. And fear can easily be attached to unresolved stress that we have. And during the day, we can run around, we can keep ourselves busy, we can pivot, we can put on a different song, we can watch a TV show, we can run out and do a project. But at night, when it gets quiet and dark, our brain starts to go and we start to think. And there are things for us to solve. So you might be wondering, I started this whole story by telling you that I had trick-or-treated for the first time. I don't know if any of you were like, well, why? Why were you allowed to go for the first time? If your parents had these very strong belief systems that going and trick-or-treating or being out was evil, then why would they allow you to go out when you were 11 years old and, and experience this? And I never really got a complete answer from my parents. All I know is that when we got in the car, And my brother, I remember so clearly, my brother looked at my dad and said, hey, dad, what was so bad about that? After we got done trick-or-treating, we had a bag full of candy. And he said, nothing. I'm I'm really sorry that I kept that fun experience from you. He goes, we we were trying our very best. We felt like we were doing the best we could at the time, and now we're going to try something different. And there was something in that that still struck me to this day, that there's something about all of us being able to look at a situation and go, is that still working? And if it's not working anymore, can we pivot and try something else? Can we tell ourselves a different story about this thing or maybe this habit that we've done forever? Now, we didn't go, we didn't go wild. Like we, I think we went trick-or-treating once a year. I think we eventually like carved a pumpkin. But we still had conversations about how to keep ourselves safe, how we are going to grow spiritually, how we're going to be close to God. But that one boundary of like we're not going to trick-or-treat anymore all of a sudden was off the table. And so I think we are all invited to do the same. We can lay the things on the table that maybe aren't working for us anymore. Or things that we see, I know my dad said one of the things he noticed was that we were more scared on that day than we were having faith. And he's like, I wanted to try something else. I wanted to try something else to see how we could move you out of that fearful experience that you were having because I didn't want to raise kids who were afraid. And so there was something about even that that he was willing to pivot away from that. And so we're invited to do the same. We can change our views and our practices. We can notice that something is creating more fear in our life and in our story. And we can change the story. 
So we can accept that we have these physical and cultural and spiritual stories about darkness that really are things that we should think about. We can't ignore them. They're there. Um, my last story is this. A few winters ago, um, I decided that it was time to make friends with winter and with the dark, um, which I think is a pretty valuable thing to do living here because it's dark like forever and ever. And I got really good about telling myself the story that I can't believe I live here. Does anybody else do that? Do you get like February, like why do we live here? Like get me a ticket to anywhere, I don't care, just some place where the sun is shining. Um, and that's funny and we can all ha ha and laugh about that and we all will in February. Um, but I realized I didn't like this story that I was telling myself and I had a friend who looked at me and said, um, he's like, how can I help you enjoy winter? And I was like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, it's, it's fine, winter's fine, I can tolerate it. He goes, no, no, uh-uh, uh-uh, we're not just going to tolerate winter anymore. He's like, I love the winter, I figured out what's worked for me. He goes, tell me three things that will make your winter better. And I'm like, same thing, like big eye roll, like three things. And I was like, well, I guess like if I had a warm pair of snow pants and maybe I had a headlamp and maybe a pass to go skiing. And so in his mind, really quickly, he's like, so for under $1,000, you could change your winter? <laughs> like, you could change your experience for enjoying winter? He's like, why aren't you spending that money? And so it was so fascinating. Like, in that moment, he, like, stopped me and made me be accountable for this story that I had been telling myself. He didn't just, like, pat me on the back and be like, oh, we all hate winter, you know, good luck, talk to you next week. Um, but he was right, and he didn't go, like, that was it. That was the last conversation, but it triggered something in me, and then I went out, I got myself a decent pair of snow pants, I got one of those little cheesy headlamp things, and my late afternoon walks in the winter are some of my favorites. Like, they're not super long, because it's pretty cold, but there's something about being out in the dark and the cold that's a little exciting, and that changed for me. We also started skiing, which is awesome to have some way to stay physically active, but that was one of the ways that one of those stories changed for me. And then I started working on changing that phrasing that I was telling myself, like, I can't believe I live here. And I changed it to, I live here. I live here. So removing the thing of telling myself what I can't do, because I think that does some negative effects to our bodies to tell our bodies what they can't do, I'm like, well, I'm actually here. I'm living here. Like, I live here, and I am here. And so even changing that phrasing did something where it gave, felt like I had some power over what was going on in my life. So as we wrap up our time together, um, I'm going to read a prayer for us all. And this is from uh, Pixie Lighthorse. She's one of my favorite authors, and she has quite a few books on prayer. And this one is... Uh, a prayer for honoring fear. And not honoring fear in the way you will think, but as I uh, read through these phrases, I just invite you to stay focused in on your breath. If you want to keep your eyes out, if you want to jot down some words, you can. If you just want to get quiet with yourself and focus on your breathing, you can. Um, so why don't we just take a moment right now, just take a deep breath in, just even start by even recognizing that you're breathing, because we all are. Take a moment to recognize your breath that's flowing in and out of you. And if you need to, just maybe you're tense in your shoulders. I know I am just a little bit just relaxing your shoulders back a bit. And you can let them drop away down from, sometimes our shoulders are uptight by our ears. Just kind of like roll them back away from your ears. And then relax your face. 
And it's good, too, to notice that you've got feeling and that there's a lot going on in your feet, that you're grounded right now, right where you stand, or right where you sit. And here's the prayer. Thank you for this day of acknowledging the nature of what is prompting me to be free. My fears are stopping me. They're keeping me small and hidden in a corner. Stand me up and set me free from the room of shadows in which my voice wavers and my shoulders shudder. Help me call them out and name them and beckon them forward so I can face them. Be my strength when I order them to back down and help me relocate them out of power. When my throat locks up and silence is thick on my tongue, would you coat it with your bright blue light of courage? Arm me with a sword of light to slice through the illusions that I have too long believed about myself. Train me to dodge their advances with the master of spiritual Aikido and deflect them with cuffs of gold. Train me for the familiar battle with my worries, troubles, imprints, and memories. And would you guide me smoothly through the challenges and anxieties of the unknown? Would you redefine my relationship with uncertainty? Would you light up this room with a shining white glimpse of a life on the other side of these consuming and sometimes irrational discouragements? And would you remind me that few of my fears actually come true? And even if a few did, it does not mean they always will. Equip me not for the worst that can happen, but would you suit me up with determination to take all things into consideration with a reasonable and quiet mind before I shrink back reflexively? Give me pause to reflect before reacting. Let me listen with the heart of a loving parent to the part of me that is afraid to cross the shaky bridge. Let me not be daunted by the devouring sensation of fright, but instead thank it audibly for its warning and attempt to protect me from harm. Let me learn a new way to console my fears and talk myself through the process. And then demonstrate how I can gently dismantle terror and soothe my uneasiness with wisdom for what I know to be true. Let my voice feel the fright and speak anyway. It's okay if it trembles. It will not always be the way I practice. Help me to understand what it is like to be free and to take measured steps to get there. Fill my lungs with your assurance and hope. Amen. So church, I hope some of those words um, breathe encouragement and life into you. Thank you so much for coming to church today, and have a wonderful Halloween. You guys are free to stay. Those of you in the building, hang out, have another cup of coffee and talk. If you want to go, you're welcome to go. Have a blessed Sunday. Yeah.